A very warm welcome to the second episode of the Educo Community Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. So no matter how much you learn from this podcast, none of it really matters unless you use that information to make a meaningful difference in your life. Educo Community has partnered with some renowned researchers, scientists, and thought leaders to develop programs for you to put their expertise into action. I've learned so much from collaborating and speaking with these experts, and this podcast came about because I know that you can do that too. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Scott Geller. Dr. Geller is the Alumni Distinguished Professor at Virginia Tech and the Director of the Center of Applied Behavior Systems in the Department of Psychology. He is also a leader of the nationally renowned seminar, Actively Caring for Safety. His TED Talk, The Psychology of Self-Motivation, has been viewed by over 5.2 million people, including myself. And when I saw it, I just, I loved all of the work that he was doing so much that I needed to get in touch with him. So without further ado, here's our conversation. All right, I'm talking today with Scott Geller. He is the expert behind Set Smarts Goals. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Colin. Been kind of under the weather these past two weeks, but my voice is coming back. Bear with me. All right, sounds great. So you've been a professor at Virginia Tech for decades now. Um, so I'd, I'd love to know just a little bit more about your story, how you got into the field you're in right now, um, and how you've stuck with it so long, and kind of your career interests. Uh, yes, this is my 49th year at Virginia Tech, and I'm convinced that applied psychology were the applications of psychological science to make the world a better place is what we need more of. Now, to add to that, my focus has been on applied behavioral science, namely applying the principles of behavioral technology to improve humanity, to improve human interactions. However, it's been my observation that some people don't like to believe that they are influenced by extrinsic or external factors, and they don't necessarily accept these principles. So recently I've decided, no, well not recently, 20 plus years ago, that we need to connect with the other, another area in psychology called humanism. So I've been calling now the approach that we've been writing about and researching and speaking about as humanistic behaviorism. In fact, I have a, a textbook that came out published by Cambridge University Press last year called Applied Psychology, Actively Caring for People. Now, the word actively caring really in, implies humanistic behaviorism because active is behavior, caring is humanism. So actively caring reflects humanistic behaviorism. Interesting. So um, I'm, I'm curious about the link between humanism and psychology. Is, is psychology more um, individualistic and humanism more about the group dynamics between us? Well, humanism is more individualistic. But B.F. Skinner, the founder of Applied Behavioral Science, he, he said that psychology is the study of the individuals. Yet we've moved to big data. We've moved to averaging. We've moved to, to grouping data. We've moved to statistical gymnastics, which, which um, my heroes have not, not necessarily bought into that. One of my heroes is, is um, W. Edwards Deming. He was a humanist. And his point was you can't measure everything. 
And D.S. Skinner was a behaviorist. And his contribution, among many, but his legacy is selection by consequences. We do what we do, what we expect to get by doing it, or what we expect to avoid by doing it. So again, those two principles, the basic principle of behavioral science is motivation by consequences, but we connect that to humanism, and now we're concerned with how do we get people to accept some of the basic principles of applied behavioral science? Interesting. So how, tell me a little bit more about your research in that area. How have you, or what have you found in trying to get people to um, accept some of those sciences you talked about? Well, our work most, most often has been in the field of safety. And we started a field called behavior-based safety or behavioral safety. And that is applying the principles of behavioral science and humanism to get workers to look out for each other with regard to safety. Wouldn't it be a better place if people were more interdependent? That is, look out for each other instead of so independent, like nice guys finish last, got to blow your own horn, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's how we've been raised in our country. But Deming taught us that we need to look bigger. We need to become systems thinkers. We need to think about how each person can help the other person. We simply need to stick together and look out for each other. And that's what we've done in industry with something called behavior-based safety. Just quickly, imagine that workers come together and they develop a checklist of what is safe and what is unsafe or at risk at our workplace. So they develop together this list, call it a coaching list. And then they coach each other. That is, one worker will observe another worker with that checklist and check off what are they doing safely and what are they doing that's risky or that could be more safe. And the point is, we don't always know ourselves what we're doing that puts, puts us at risk when it comes to safety. When it comes to other things, too, we don't necessarily know that we are performing at an optimal level. That's why among the seven principles I've come up with and, and been writing about is feedback. We need to be humble, to accept feedback, to have the courage to give others feedback, behavior-based feedback, I mean to say, though. Feedback is behavior-based. What am I doing well? And where is there room for improvement? People need to have the humility to adjust their behavior as a result of receiving feedback. So, uh, obviously, everyone kind of realizes that they need to take feedback and accept feedback and kind of learn through feedback. Um, what are some of the main ways that you've seen that people have been able to accomplish that goal? Well, we, we use the acronym, simple acronym, COACH. The acronym COACH, the letters of COACH kind of say it all. The first letter is C, CARE. It starts with caring. I am only observing you to give you behavioral feedback because I care. I care about optimal performance. And I care so much, the next letter is O. I'm, really, I'm willing, with your permission, to observe your behavior, to observe what you're doing. And 
Then, while I'm observing, the next letter is A. I'm analyzing the situation to see what might be encouraging less than desirable behavior or at-risk behavior. And what might I change so to facilitate safe behavior or, again, broader than safety, more desirable behavior. The next letter in coaches is C. I need to communicate. But here's where humanism comes in. I'm not directly communicating. We call it non-directive, meaning I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to ask more questions to find out where you're coming from. The big word in humanism is empathy. I want to understand where the other person is coming from. And then together, we can come up with an optimal strategy for making things better. And if I do that, if I communicate in a non-directive way, that is, ask more questions, then you will accept the advice that we come up with together. For example, suppose I fill out this checklist and I've got a list of the safe and at-risk behaviors. In fact, I've got a formula. What's the percent safe behavior? Now, some of the folks using this checklist have misinterpreted what I've said. They've just taken that number and they call that their statistic. And that's not the way it should be. We need to simply show the person the checklist and say, this is what I found from my biased observations. Every observation is biased. We all bring our own past history to those situations. So let's talk about this and let's talk about what we can do to make more safe behavior and less at-risk behavior. And the last letter of coach, by the way, colon, is help. H for help. If I do it right, I will help to make the situation better. I will facilitate more appropriate behavior or desirable behavior, and I will help to inhibit or to hold back less desirable behavior. I really like the idea of being able to combat our own biases simply by asking questions. Have you found that phenomenon in other areas of your research? Oh, absolutely. Again, one of the principles of humanism is that we all are unique. We all see the world differently. We can't assume that somebody else sees something the way you see it. In fact, we see this so much in politics these days, don't we? I mean, you turn on one station and it's, it's, it's the right or the left. I mean, CNN versus Fox News. I mean, we call it confirmation bias. People see the world for what they want to see, and they reject information that is not consistent with, with their perspective. So knowing that, we have to be more open and more empathic when we listen to other people. If we could just do that, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I really like the idea that we can combat our own biases by simply asking questions. It's really hard to see where we're biased, but that is such a simple rule that people can follow to come out and overcome that confirmation bias. Exactly. Now, what you, we've just been talking about is common sense. And there are some people out there who believe that, that it's all about common sense. But it's not about common sense. It's about science. It's about evidence-based principles that have been shown to improve behavior and improve attitudes and improve interpersonal relationships. So again, we have our common sense. I have my common sense. And it's not necessarily science. 
And so the challenge we have is to bring the principles based on scientific evidence to the situation. But then by listening and being empathic, help the person or help the group, help people accept those principles and apply them appropriately. So is the COACH acronym really a way for people to train their empathy towards one another and get more accomplished with each other? Well, the, again, the, o, the COACH acronym is a way to change or improve behavior. Simple as that. I mean, it's a way that we can apply our observations, apply feedback to a situation to improve behavior. But that's not... That's not all of our conversations. We have, for example, we have relationship conversations. And that's really the foundation of interpersonal relationships where we, we really develop relationships with people and that takes empathy. And that's the foundation. And once we have a relationship, then we can move on and talk about improvement. And we would start with possibilities. So once we have a relationship, let's talk about what could be better? What are we looking for? What is our vision? By the way, vision comes before goals. That is, what's our vision? What's the ideal place we'd like to reach? Okay, that would be a possibility conversation. And after we talk about our vision and where we're going, now we have an action conversation or a behavioral conversation. Okay, let's step back to the present. Let's step back. We know the future. Now let's step back and talk about what do we want to do right now? What can we do right now to move toward that vision? And that's where goal setting comes in. That's where we set goals. That's an action conversation. And by the way, after the action conversation, we have an opportunity conversation. That is, we talk about opportunities for putting our action or our goal setting to, oper- to work. Where we, where we apply what we're, our goals. And then finally, the last level of conversation is a follow-up. So after we've set our goals and looked for opportunities, now we have a follow-up conversation with that person to ask them how they're doing. And so, again, so I've really just defined five levels of interpersonal conversation that we can use to, to improve people, to make the world a better place. And it starts with the foundation, which is relationship building. You know, when we typically just, we don't have time for that these days. We're on the internet, we do emails, and that's fine. That conversation is very efficient, but it's not effective in building relationships. We need to connect with people personally and develop what we've said earlier, empathy. A, re- a realization of where they're coming from. Now we have a relationship. Now we can talk about the future. What do you want? Possibilities. Then we go back to the present. What goals can we set right now to move us toward that vision? And then what are the opportunities for putting, putting your goals in place? And finally, we're going to have some follow-up conversations to see how you're doing. By the way, what I've just said is what every work supervisor should take very seriously with their people. You know, that's really what a supervisor, what a teacher, um, what a professor needs to do with, with their students or their workers, you know, set personal and professional goals and then 
follow up and have conversations about how we're doing, follow up conversations. And of course, then the goals might change. As we achieve one goal, we move on and set new goals. So you touch on a lot of things that have to do with your Set Smarts Goals program. Uh, I would love to know more about how you came up with each one of those letters in that acronym, because I know that it's, it's a little bit different than what most people think about when they think about setting SMART goals. Oh, yes. I mean, like I say, I'm not the first one to come up with an acronym SMART to talk about goals. In fact, Zig Ziglar is very well known for his audio tapes on goal setting. But I have attached different words for the letters. Now, we all agree that the S stands for specific. Specifically, what are you going to do? That's a behavioral goal. What will you do as you work towards your vision? It's the M where there's a difference. When I say smart goals to people in an audience, and what's the M stand for? They jump up and they shout, measurable. And I say, well, okay, but I want M to stand for motivational. Because when you set a goal, again, given Skinner's legacy to us is selection by consequences. When you set a goal, you need to realize what consequences will you receive if you achieve the goal. So I think that's the motivational. I mean, I'm not going to get into setting a goal unless I feel motivated toward the consequences I will receive. Okay. So that's, but that's a difference than what other people have learned. And now the A is common. A is, I believe the goal is achievable. Or another word is attainable. But I have to believe that I can reach this goal. Now, it's best if it's a stretch goal. I mean, it's, it's not that simple. But I know, I believe I can reach it. So, and then the R. For me, the R is relevant. The goal needs to be relevant for my vision. And then the, the, the T is trackable. Again, I don't need the M for measurable because if I can track my progress, surely I can measure it. And then I add an S. I add an S for share. I need to share my goal with somebody. Tell somebody else about what your goal is, and they might help you be accountable. Now, let me say one thing about those the three letters the, the motivational, achievable, and relevant. I believe that goals should be empowering. When I define empowering as being answered, answer, be able to answer yes to these questions. Can you do it? Will it work? Is it worth it? So let's look at what those, those three questions. When, I, when we talk about self-motivation, when we talk about feeling empowered, you ask the person, do you feel empowered? Uh, uh, what do you mean? Well, first question, can you do it? Can you do what we're asking you to do? By the way, that brings in achievable. Can you do it? Yes, I can do it. Okay, second question, will it work? Do you believe that this goal that you're shooting for will work to reach your vision? The ultimate vision will, will at least bring you closer to your vision. Guess what? That's relevant. That brings in relevant of SMART's goals. And the last question is, is it worth it? Now, this is a motivational question. This is a motivational question. Is everything you're asking me to do, is it worth doing? And that's, of course, 
motivational. So again, if I ask, yes, it's worth it, motivational. Yes, I can do it. That's the A, that's achievable. And it is relevant. Yes, it's relevant toward my vision. And, and again, that, that is answering the question, um, will it work? So again, I, I like people to feel empowered about their goals. And that's why I've defined SMART's goals the way we've defined it here. Interesting. So I consider myself someone who's very motivated by purpose. And when I think purpose, I think more about the long term, the bigger picture, rather than the immediate consequences I'm going to get. So would you see purpose as more of a relevant aspect of your framework, or where do you see it kind of fitting in here? Well, that's an interesting question. Purpose is so important. Purpose is the reason I haven't retired from Virginia Tech, yet I'm well beyond retirement age. Purpose, for me, connects more to vision. You know, why are we here? What are you doing? What is your vision? You know, for you, for you, what are you doing to make a difference? And that's purpose. You know, we have, imagine two bricklayers laying brick and the, the supervisor comes over and says to one of the bricklayers, what are you doing? And he says, I'm laying brick. Good. That's an hourly worker just laying brick. He says to the other worker, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a community center. And so again, that worker has a bigger picture, a bigger vision. They're both doing the same behavior. They're both laying blocks. But one has a perspective of a bigger purpose, and that is motivating. So it's kind of like, okay, what, what, what is your ultimate purpose? For me, for me these days, my purpose is to promote the actively caring for people movement, which is based on humanistic behaviorism. And behind that, of course, are smart goals and systems thinking and helping each other and paying it forward. There's a lot of stuff behind it. But again, the purpose, and that's what keeps me going, to believe that I can inspire more of my students to buy into the need to help others, the need to, to be here for more than ourselves, the need to actively care for people. Sure, sure. So for people who don't know, tell us a little bit more about the actively caring movement, how it got started, what your goals are for it. Tell us just a little bit more about it. Well, the actively caring for people movement, I've been handing out, I've been talking about that in the field of safety for over 20 years. But we had a tragedy at Virginia Tech. I'm sure many people remember that. It was 2016, I mean, 2007, April 16th, um, 33, counting the, the shooter, was lost their lives. And that's when my students said, we have to make this movement bigger. You know, after that shooting, Oh, everybody came around, we're, we're hugging each other, and we showed the, the kind of caring that, that we really need more often. So that was reactive caring, but we need proactive caring. So my students got behind the movement and said, let's make this bigger. So we got a website. We have wristbands. I've been handing out wristbands for years, but these wristbands have numbers on them. Every wristband says actively caring for people, and it has an identification number. So when I give a wristband to somebody, when I see an act of kindness, I say, thank you for what you just did. Now join our movement. And then go to the website, activelycaringpeople.org, and register your, your wristband number. So 
So they register their wristband number, and then, of course, the, the deal is to pass that wristband on to somebody else, and they register the number. And then you can see your wristband travel from Blacksburg, Virginia, to, to um, South Africa. And we've seen that happen. So it's about sharing stories of kindness, intentional acts of kindness. And they're not random. They're intentional. We plan acts of kindness for others, and then we report the story and we pass it on. But it's all behind this basic, basic notion of actively caring for people, which, of course, is founded on applied behavioral science and humanism. We have a, we have a workbook. We have a, a training manual for police officers. Now, police officers have blue wristbands, and they are also identified. They have their own website, activelycaringpolicing.org. And police officers, imagine, in the community are giving a blue wristband with an identification number to people in the community when they see acts of kindness. And then they are told, hey, this is for you. Join our movement and report the story at our website, activelycaringpolicing.org. And so community policing is becoming a positive process where police officers are looking for kind acts, pro-social behavior, and then recognizing that. We also have a, 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 a training manual for teachers. We have a training manual for, for safety professionals. And we've just completed one for parents. But each of these training manuals, customized for a particular audience, teach those seven basic principles that we've been talking about. That's great. Thanks for sharing. I mean, that really brought up a great uh, example in my own life because I live down in Florida and I saw a lot of the reactive caring that you talked about uh, in your description there. Because when we had hurricane season hit us this year, it was, it was pretty bad. And for the first time, I was able to see people really trying to help one another in their regular lives. Obviously, it's not a tragedy like you experienced, but I did definitely see that reactive caring. So if I were, you know, now it's not uh, hurricane season anymore. So me being a regular person and I want to create that same experience and be more actively caring, how can I get involved? We have some, some people are, you can purchase wristbands because I give them, I give at least one out every day, you know, and what you can purchase wristbands and then you become a disseminator of the wristbands. Um, you go to the website and you can purchase wristbands there. Um, but I, yeah, but it, we don't need wristbands. It's, it's just the idea of thanking people, recognizing people for their kind pro-social acts. I mean, in this country, we think it's click it or ticket. We think that the way you change behavior is to pass a law and enforce it. That is the efficient way to change behavior, but it's certainly not the most effective way. The most effective way to improve behavior, positive consequences. And that's our first le lesson. That's the first principle of each of our books is to employ more positive consequences to improve behavior. And of course, that's based on science. We know that's the case. Not only is behavior improved, but attitude is improved and buy-in is improved. So that's the first, that's the first principle. Ah, so like you said, it, it isn't really about the wristbands. It's more about the stories that we share of uh, people helping each other and then 
getting the wristbands as a result. I'd love to know what is one of your, say, favorite stories uh, from the actively caring movement so far? Well, um, here's a particular story. Um, I, I lay, my, bank, my bank teller said, told me this story. She said, she said, Dr. Geller, I know about your movement. I have to tell you a story. I was at Panera and I was on the phone and I was not having a pleasant conversation on the telephone with an individual, but it, and, and people around me could hear that I was not happy. So I got up, I got up to, uh, to make my order and, um, the guy said, Hey, you're not having a good day. I'd like to buy your meal. So this meal is for you. And she said, wow. And she said, I need to give you an actively caring for people wristband. And she's reaching in her purse to get the wristband that I had given her the other day. And the guy said, no worry. I already have one. I got the wristband from somebody else. So, so that's the kind of story where it shows that, you know, it's, it's spreading. It, it's spreading on our campus. We have an, an actively caring for people club, for example. And they come up with, with acts of kindness that they can do on campus. Like, for example, recognize a professor for a change after a lecture, you know, have, have flowers or, or candy bars, some just a simple act of kindness that brings the attention to the positive things that people do. And we recognize that. Yeah. But, and there are many other stories like that, but that's one that thrilled me because I got it secondhand that somebody was telling me about the story and, and the guy said, I held up his hand. I already got a wristband. Oh, man, that's great. I mean, as someone who is trying to start my own movement, it must be so uh, gratifying to be able to hear that your movement is spreading in that way, that not only did that guy uh, do something nice, but he might have done it because he got that wristband the first time. I mean, that, that must be so rewarding for you. Oh, uh, yeah. And by the way, here, here's one more quick one. This is how this started several years ago. This is why we put numbers on the wristbands. One of my students was at LSU at a leadership conference, and he was telling another student about the movement. This was like five years ago, telling us about the movement. And after he got finished, the lady said to him, well, let me tell you a story. I was riding the Metro in Washington, D.C., and I was sitting across from a man who did not look very happy. Now, I know that when you ride the Metro, you don't talk to people. You just ride. But I looked across. He looked so unhappy. And all I said to him is, are you okay? And he said, no. I just had the worst day of my life. And he proceeds to explain to her his day. And she just listens as she discussed with empathy, with emotion. In fact, she claimed that she got teary-eyed hearing his story. And then she said, wow, it's all she said after the listen. She said, Mike, stop is coming up. I'm going to have to leave. And he said, wait a minute before you go. And he took a green wristband off his wrist. And he said, this wristband says actively caring for people. And I want you to have this because you just cared for me more than anyone else has all year long. Just because he listened. And of course, when we heard that story, we said, where did she, where did he get that wristband? And, and. So that's when we decided to put numbers on them because I've been giving these wristbands out for, for many years before that. But that's, we said, let's track this. Wouldn't it be nice to know 
where did he get that wristband? And what did he do to receive the wristband? So anyway, that's how the, the numbering system started about five years ago. That's great. I mean, there's so many things to unpack with that story. I mean, maybe that guy wouldn't have had the strength to be so vulnerable with Complete Stranger if he hadn't uh, done whatever he did in order to get that wristband in the first place. He was obviously kind to another stranger and then uh, was more willing to be openness to the kindness of this particular stranger. Absolutely. But also because she was receptive, you know? I mean, we're often not seemingly receptive. Our body language doesn't indicate that we really want to, he we want to hear from somebody else. But she was clearly receptive, you know? And so, again, it's, it's, there's a lot of dynamics that go on in a personal relationship or a personal interaction, and it's more than just an email. <laughs> That's why um, people say that our, our social skills are, are on the decrease, are waning, because we're so focused on emails and not interpersonal conversation. But that's, an, that's another story. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's another thing that we're going to have to learn how to unpack as a society is you can have those empathetic moments with a stranger in person, but not necessarily, you know, over the phone or in email or, you know, Facebook or whatever. Have you done any research on, uh, you know, how communication uh, leads to empathy or anything like that? I haven't done it myself, but there has been research done and people have written about it. But I can tell you as a professor, I've seen comments on, on teaching evaluation forms that are more negative, more nasty than ever before. It's, it's like because of this email, because I can be anonymous, I can just say whatever I want to say. And so I've definitely seen that. I've seen the climate, even at our university, change dramatically with the total focus on emails. And of course, many faculty tell me that they're absolutely overloaded. You know, I teach a class of 600 students and everybody feels that their emails need to be attended to. And that takes time. So again, we have an efficient way of communicating, but um, sometimes we let go of the more one-to-one -one empathic way of communicating. So are we, the question is, are we becoming um, less empathic and less pro-social because you're relying so much on email conversations instead of real-world communication, even a telephone call? Um, we're not doing as much of that anymore because we can sit behind our computer and, and type. And guess what? In the workplace, supervisors are not going out on the floor as they used to to interact with employees because they're catching up on their emails. And besides, they can be very efficient by sending emails to people. So I think it's pretty obvious that we're becoming less people-oriented as a society. No arguments there. But it is, it is a bit of a uh, dichotomy because, you know, because of where we are at with communication, you and I can collaborate from miles and miles and miles away we can have these kinds of conversations and we can share these conversations with people from all over the world. I mean, we never were able to accomplish nearly that, that feat before. It's absolutely amazing too, that, that people now can feel more connected with people in their lives with Facebook, for example, and they can just 
they can they can feel connected. So there's in some ways perhaps less loneliness, at least the apparent of of loneliness, because they they feel they're connecting with people. But again, I would argue that that the connection is not the same as a one-on-one hug conversation interaction. But it, it again, you're absolutely right. It's a trade-off. We can't we can't deny how efficient it is to press a few buttons and all of a sudden send a message out to people all over the world. And like, in fact, as you and I are talking, you might be sending this, this conversation out. It would never happen without the miracle of the Internet. So you're right. It's, 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 we, we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a win-lose. I mean, we, we lose some, but I think the game overall, people would say, is, is superior because we are, in terms of production, if our focus is on getting things done, making things happen, production, oh, obviously we've, we've benefited with the Internet. But what about the other side? What about connecting with humans, connecting with people, interacting with empathy? I don't know. I think maybe some of that has been lost. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's going to be a struggle for probably the rest of my lifetime anyway, um, in order to figure out how to communicate with each other effectively in the modern world. But I'm curious, you know, you've seen a lot of different uh, changes, I'm sure, in education over the time that you've worked at Virginia Tech. Uh, what has some, been some of the changes in the learning environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. For example, in the good old days, I, I could show overheads or I could go to a blackboard and I could actually teach in an interactive way. Today, in fact, I, I must say that I've been using overheads longer than anybody else on my, in, at our university. But today, students want a PowerPoint presentation and they want the PowerPoint slides sent to them before the lecture. So essentially, lectures are simply sitting and going through the slides, some don't believe they have to come to class, for heaven's sakes, because they already have the slides. So my point is, the whole teaching learning environment has changed as a function of the Internet. Now, not necessarily all to the negative side. Again, we're reaching more people. We're getting more of my information out there. But I'm not sure we're getting that, that valuable professor-student interaction that we used to have. Again, I used to be able to get questions from the audience and, and write on the blackboard or on a grease pencil on an overhead and, and, and do it while we're talking. It was more of a conversation. Today, it's more of a lecture. And again, the students bring their computers to class, so they're pretty focused on their computers. Some of them aren't even paying attention. They're, they're on Facebook or something else. But so the focus is not the same. They have, their, they have a distraction. And we know that. We have a distraction for driving too these days. So the computer has its pluses and its minuses. Um, and I've seen it in the classroom. And we've seen it on the road, have we not? I mean, again, we're addicted. At least that's a term we use. It's really not true. It's called a positive reinforcement machine. I call it a Skinner box. That's what our smartphone is. We push some buttons. We get an immediate consequence. And that is more exciting than listening to a lecture in the classroom. That's an interesting point. Uh, I mean, so what do you think overall? Uh, you know, it is a lot easier for your students in order to find information and uh, get access to all of the great sources that, 
you know, are available today and all the great content, do you think that overall uh, education has improved or has some of the more distracted aspects of it brought it down overall? Oh, that's a great question because let's face it, it has improved in a way that students can, can punch in some numbers and they can get the sources right there. When I was a student, I had to go to the library and look up books. Now, these books and this information is at their disposal through the Internet. So there's no doubt about it that that is a great benefit. But again, I have to wonder if I don't have to work too hard for it, am I retaining it? Of course, that's a big issue. You know, there is some data that suggests that people retain information more if they write down the notes, scribble with their own handwriting instead of typing it on a computer. And there's something that goes on when you're actually kind of owning the material, but while you're writing it down, you're putting it in your own words rather than just copying what you hear with, with your uh, word processing on your computer. So um, the, the jury's still out on that, but let's face it, the environment is very different than it used to be. It used to feel more like a collaborative teaching learning um, process than it is today. But at the same time, you said it so well, Colin, people, these people can, uh, can um, gather information. They can type in the name of their professor. They couldn't do this in years ago. And they could find out how credible is this guy or this lady. I mean, where has this person been? So they can find information about those, their professors before they come to class. They can choose a class based on the background of the professor. So in many ways, we have so many advantages these days with with the internet. And I think really in balance, the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages. And, but I still think maybe we need actively caring for people movements to kind of add to these advantages, to add that interpersonal act of kindness feature to the whole thing. I was just going to make that point that along with all of the great technology and the unprecedented access to you know, knowledge for people for all around the world, we still need to make a deliberate effort in really empathizing with one another and doing things like uh, the actively caring movement and everything like that. Yeah, and you know, we're always going to have workers and drivers. One time, we're going to soon have autonomous vehicles. We have some of those now. So but the, the individual is being taken out of a lot of the jobs out there from driving to the, to the workplace. Um, but at least for now, there is this human interaction that really people need. And then, if, in fact, if there were no people driving or no people working, then we still have families, we still have schools, we have places where people get together. And it, it's my hope that people never forget that we are here together. We do work in a system. We are interdependent. Everybody's job, whatever it is, is important to make the system work, and we have to help people feel important. Dale Carnegie said that years ago in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, help people feel important. And that connects to the first lesson, use more positive consequences. And it connects to self-motivation. When people believe they are competent at doing worthwhile work, they're more self-motivated when they believe they had some choice, some, not total, but some choice in what they're doing, they're more self-motivated. And third, when they believe 
They are, they are doing something that connects to other people. When they believe that there's an interdependency piece of what they do, they're more self-motivated. So now we're getting around to that earlier topic of self-motivation. People are more self-motivated when they perceive that competent, choice, and community, the three C's of self-motivation. So kind of mapping those three C's onto your SMARTS framework, we're able to see kind of the choice is definitely under specific and motivational. You know, you're choosing the exact goal that you want to achieve and the reasons why you want to achieve it. And then competency is that it's achievable uh, and it's relevant to what you are capable of accomplishing. And then finally, the, the S on the end, uh, the shareable, is that sense of community. So it, it kind of maps on there perfectly. Man, that's perfect. You got such good insight into all of this, Colin. That's exactly right. That, that's right. And again, one more time, you feel empowered. Your goal is empowering when you answer yes to three questions. Can I do it? Will it work? Is it worth it? So it all kind of hangs together with self-motivation and goal setting and, and making the world a better place. I can't argue with that. So for anyone who wants to try out Set Smart's goals, what do you hope they accomplish by using your program on a regular basis? Well, it is about achievement, isn't it? It's about people achieving. And I've had, I've had people email me when they've seen my TEDx talk on, on self-motivation. And they email me, and I, I can't answer them all. I get so many. And, you know, help me. I love the principles you taught, but what can I do? And and how can I, how can I, I'm, I'm not feeling motivated. I'm, I just sit around all day. Um, what, what advice do you have? And I think the best advice I would have is start small. You know, set a goal, something that you believe you can achieve and track how you're doing and then celebrate, you know. But sometimes we have to, we have to experience achievement in order to feel competent. And I think that's what it's all about is believing we feel competent as something worthwhile and setting an achievable goal and then reaching it is one way to see that. But again, I, I must say that there are a lot of folks out there who, who they hear the principles and they, they hear the lessons like in my TEDx talk, but, but they don't quite feel it. And I think the way to feel it is to just get started and think back and sit back. What could I do? What, what should I do? that will bring me closer to a vision, you know, better health, um, more excitement at work, more something, something, have that vision, and then step back and say, what can I do today? What goals can I do that will be relevant to reaching that vision? And, and can I feel empowered? That is, can I do this? Will it work? Get it close to the vision? And finally, can I track my progress? to show that clearly it, it's worth it. I'm motivated. So it's like we need, we need to be trained to do the right thing. We need to be educated to realize that what I'm doing will help me reach my vision. And we need to be motivated, believing that it's worthwhile. It's, all this is worth it. And it is. It is. And then we reach that one goal and we set another one. And we, we move on. And I think that's, that's the way to get us off the couch and get us doing something and tracking it. I mean, I, I try to exercise um, every day, but I track it on the calendar. I track what I've done. And I, I look and I see 
I haven't didn't do as much as I did yesterday because these days I've been I've been under the weather. So and I act, I track it and then I can talk to myself about you know what do I do better and how can I improve. But that's that's just you know that's just one area. Same with 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 other things that I need to do. I set goals to make it happen. Yeah, and now we actually have a program for people to take action on your advice so that they can feel it and they can see the results for themselves, start small, and achieve the bigger goals that they, they hope to achieve. I hope so. Hope so, Colin. All right, Scott, I won't take up any more of your time today. Uh, I thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me, and I wish you a happy holidays. Thank you, my friend. Talk to you later. Have a nice holiday. Thank you very much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Geller. If you are looking for more resources on how you can take action on Dr. Geller's advice, be sure to check out his program on educocommunity.com or check out his TED Talk titled The Psychology of Self-Motivation. You can also check out his website, activelycaringforpeople.org. That is ac4p.org. Be sure to subscribe to the Educo Community Podcast and join us next week when I speak with Shauna Shapiro about her daily mindfulness journal.